Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be taking a look at the new Judd Apatow film, The King of Staten Island, starring SNL comedian Pete Davidson. Uh, we rented it for $20. It was really expensive. That's so right. if you're not going to rent it, <laughs> here's your free review. Uh, we also took a look at Spike Lee's new film on Netflix, Defy Bloods, which is an experience of a movie, mostly because <laughs> it's like two and a half hours long. We watched it's the whole so thing. <laughs> We're going to give you the rundown on it. We're also going to look at a couple trailers that are coming up for some movies that frankly... Don't look that good, but nothing's coming out because we're still in weird pandemic, uh, but things are opening up again, and we need to talk about that in the news, which is the first place we're starting. Our first story this week, HBO Max uh, confirms a rotating roster of live-action DC films. This is coming on the heels of, uh, you know, some other news they've had about about a certain Civil War-era film that I think we should talk about, but we just kind of wanted to combine these stories and talk about them. Andy, what is going on? With HBO Max. So after its somewhat disappointing launch where we, we found out that a number of titles were not going to be offered uh, from the DC library, such as Man of Steel and the Dark Knight trilogy, it turns out they're planning to axe a bunch of their uh, DC films. Uh, I think at, as a kind of preparation for things like Wonder Woman coming coming out, although that's been pushed back. But yes, they're, they're a huge slate, in including uh, Justice League, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, Wonder Woman, Suicide Squad, Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, like all their... It's ridiculous. This, yeah, yeah. It, it's like the main reason people have this this service and they're... Um, and, this, you know, this is the danger of, of streaming is things can come and go at any time. And usually when properties are removed it's to boost rental numbers yeah the only the only dc movies live action that are still going to be on there after july 1st are aquaman shazam joker green lantern and supergirl so they're getting rid of like three-fourths of their film probably more like 80 percent of their live action films that they premiered the service with i know there's another dc subscription service right i I don't even know the name of it but but there is a dc online service you can subscribe to i'm sure you know andy but I can't remember. Uh, okay, fine. It's a little forgettable. <laughs> there is another one you can subscribe to that has all of these. And, like, I know they probably don't want to draw too much business away from their, like, exclusive DC comic streaming service. But hot damn. Like, this was supposed to be a big feature. Like, all of this DC content is going to be here. And now they're taking most of it away. And they say, well, it's going to be rotating. Sure. But, like, it's a little phony. It's a little phony to not even premiere with all of the live-action films you said you were going to have. Dark Knight's not on there. None of the Nolan films are, right? Right. And, and now you're taking a bunch away, and you're saying, ah, oh, they'll, they'll come back eventually. That sucks, man. Yeah, and especially since they have a whole section of HBO Max that's dedicated to DC, just like they do for, like, Studio Ghibli and Turner Classic Movies. There's a whole tab dedicated to all the DC stuff, and they're pulling what is arguably most of those properties that anyone would want to watch. Yeah. Like what's the, you know, when they talked about the Snyder cut coming to HBO max, which is a, a whole thing by itself. Well, what's the plan? You're going to have that on there for a month and then pull that off too. Like, well, it'll, it'll, it'll come back. It's in the rotation. It's ridiculous. Now, yeah. What's going on with, uh, uh, gone with the wind. Okay. So the, there was another, uh, story that came out that HBO max was going to remove, uh, the civil war epic gone with the wind. Uh, the, you know, very, important film from 1937 or 39 it's a classic um and and this does this is an important story uh with kind of the the volatile times we're living with they they pulled it but they're not pulling it permanently so that's that's number one and 
that they are pulling it so they can essentially put a disclaimer at the beginning of it. Uh, there is a lot of really blatant racism in in that that film. I've actually never never seen it, um, but that's what I what I hear and what I understand. And that it has it's very much like Confederate nostalgia of oh you know this is how things would have been or you know the good old South you know th- these kinds of things. Um, and it's a product of its time. And it's important that, um, you know, they're not going to try and alter the film or anything like that, but they do want to put a disclaimer at the beginning that says, you know, there are depictions in here that we know they are problematic by today's standards. Um, We just want you to know that they're in here. They're a product of their times. We're not going to alter them because to, to alter that would be to act as if those injustices never occurred. Right. Uh, You know, I, I've never seen Gone with the Wind, and when you said, hey, they're pulling Gone from, Gone with the Wind off of HBO, I was like, oh, man, what a bummer. I've never seen it. I totally should have taken the chance to watch it. And then you said, well, actually, it's only going to be gone for like a week while they had a disclaimer. I thought to myself, okay, well, I'm not actually going to go back and watch it. It's like four hours long, and I know yeah. it's a classic. Like, I know mm-hmm. it's like a film classic, because when it came out, it was like the biggest production ever, and it was this huge sweeping thing, and I totally respect that, but like, I'm still not going to watch it. That being said, I think I'm into the disclaimer thing, right? Because Disney Plus does that. They add disclaimers uh, on the front of stuff that maybe has not aged the best, things like Jungle Book or or, or Peter Pan. Um, I, I think that's an okay way to preview this stuff. I think it's better than just pulling it completely, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do think it is important to put something like that. It's something like Birth of, Birth of a Nation, which is one of the earliest American films, but it is absolutely Ku Klux Klan propaganda from around 1915. And that's an important, it's important to know that that film exists. And as, you know, as a film historian, you know, it would be interesting to watch that at some point, but you have to watch it with a certain lens lens on. And, and it's not just things that are, you know, 100 or 80 years old. I mean, there's there's films from 10, 15 years ago that would be very problematic. Like this happens as our, our society progresses. But um, but it, it's good to look back on these things and see the problems that that they were at that time. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, four years in film school and never once did anybody mention the film Birth of a Nation. Never in a textbook that I come across it. It was actually a huge movie back in the day. But of course, it's now white supremacy propaganda and nobody talks about it. If you want to know a little bit more about it, watch Spike Lee's Black Klansman, his last film. They've got a great, great like vignette in there about it that I think says everything it needs to say. Um, Gone with the Wind is a bit of a bummer, I, I guess, uh, because of what's in it. I, I don't mind the disclaimer. I, I was a little bummed to see that it like ramped up in Amazon sales after HBO announced they were pulling it. Mm-hmm. So that sucks. But in other news, uh, things that are a little less depressing, we've got this story. AMC is planning to reopen its theaters this July. They're not the only ones. Cinemark and Regal, the other two major theater chains, are also talking about doing it in early July. Andy, what's your hot take on this? You know, July is the hot month that all the theaters are going to try and get back in business. Uh, we know that Christopher Nolan's Tenet is releasing at the end of the month. Uh, Disney's Mulan is also releasing, I think, July 24th. So theaters are attempting to get back to a somewhat normal situation. Uh, I know that they have started the process of opening or will start that process soon. I think this week, actually, they're going to start with just a handful of theaters and slowly open more of them. And then, you know, they're supposed to have revised safety and cleanliness guidelines and, and things like that. It's worth mentioning this is coming after a story we reported last week when AMC said that they are 
How they have substantial doubts, that's the word I'm looking for, about its ability to keep operating if the pandemic-related closures continue. They are massively in debt, and they have something like $700 million to open their one their 1,000 theaters and keep functioning before they go under. So AMC's in big trouble, and their back's against the wall here. They don't have much choice. Cinemark and Regal, I can't imagine, are too far behind. We haven't seen any numbers for them, but the fact is, movie theaters are hurting. They need to be open and they need to be in business to stay in business. And being out of business doesn't work for them. And and soon enough, they'll go under if they don't do something. Even still, I can't say the science says this is a good idea. We are seeing things opening back up, right? We are seeing uh, amusement parks start to talk about opening back up. Businesses, certainly here in Texas where we do the show, we are at a 75% capacity, I think, is where our governor has put us. Even still, uh, Andy, are you thinking about going to the movies anytime soon? <laughs> well, th- that's going to be the big question is, even if theaters are open, will people go? Is there a movie event big enough and will they feel safe going? Um, for, me, <laughs> for me, this is a little bit of a yes and no. So in anticipation of Tenet, uh, Christopher Nolan is uh, doing a 10-year anniversary screening of Inception, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. It was number two of my top 10 films of the decade. Uh, of the 20 teens. Uh, so that's, that will absolutely get me into theaters, especially if it's in IMAX. Um, and also the, that's supposed to show some exclusive previews of, of Tenet and maybe some other surprise things such as the Batman or Wonder Woman 1984. So we'll, we'll have to see, but the, there are certain events that will get me, but um, I don't, I don't know as about the public at large. You know, it's funny, when we talked about theaters reopening in the past, what I said was the thing that would get me to go before I really felt safe is a Christopher Nolan film. Uh, specifically, I said if they were in Dark Knight and IMAX, so I never got to see it. And it's funny that that's exactly what we're talking about now. They're going to run Inception and IMAX with maybe some cool features, uh, a trailer for Tenet or some unseen footage. I know they've done that in the past with Christopher Nolan's films. He's a very theatrical guy. And it's funny that that's the thing that would probably drive me back. That being said, man, I wish going back to the movie theaters felt more like a warm embrace, right? And less like a cold shoulder. Yeah. Like, (laughs) I'm going to be wearing a mask. I'm going to be, like, sitting, trying to sit away from people, which I do at the theater anyway. But the point is, like, it's not going to be like a warm welcome. It's going to be like a cold experience. And that yeah. sucks. Taking and, your and, life in your hands. Yeah, a little bit. And like, I'm not excited about that. Um, I am excited to see Tenet. I, I do like the idea of going to see Inception again. But at the same time, like I got Inception on Blu-ray. I can watch it at home. And like, it's going to be hard to really convince me it's a good idea. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. If you go, maybe I'll tag along. Maybe that's the way I'll do it. That yep. way, you know, we'll both we'll both be... I also, I also think there's not going to be a huge amount of, you know, diehard Nolan fans that want to come out and see a 10 year old film in in theater. I, I think that I think that works in our favor, but we'll see when the when Tenet actually comes out, if it actually comes out, because there's a good possibility if it doesn't make this July date, it might just get pushed to Christmas. Yeah, that would be that would be wild if they just got this close to it, decided you know what, just push it six months. Um, we'll see. I'm I'm a little afraid they're just going to barrel forward, but. We'll see what happens. Uh, We'll be reporting on what's going on with movie theaters and how they're opening, and we'll keep you updated on numbers. So if you want to know more about just kind of the nationwide look, keep it here on Offscript for more. Uh, We've got one other story to talk about involving our very own 
Oscars, the Academy Awards. Uh, according to this article, the Film Academy is announcing new plans to increase diversity and expanding their Best Picture category. Just a few years ago, they already decided to expand the Best Picture category to up to 10 films. Now they're doing something a little different. Uh, Andy, you're our resident Academy Awards expert. <laughs> what is going on? So the Academy is going to permanently set the Best Picture category number at 10. It previously had been up to 10, but there there was a thing with the voting. It, it had to get a movie, had to get a certain number of votes to be on, uh, to get nominated. And so sometimes you might get only eight nominees or nine nominees or, you know, it was, it fluctuated, but now they're just going to set it at 10 permanently, uh, which I think is a good thing because there's always, there's always more than 10 films that deserve to be nominated uh, for one reason or, or another. And it's, you know, even, even if a film that doesn't have a chance at winning, it's one of those things it's not honored to be nominated. And it's another way of it, of just including more films. Yeah. There's a big statement here uh, on top of that. They've got this thing about changing term limits for, for, for governors of the Academy and voters. It, it's, it's a bit of a strange organization and I'll be honest, I still don't really understand exactly how it works, but as far as this decision goes, I can't say I'm surprised. It was weird when they said we'll do up to 10, right? Because I think last year they had like what, eight nominees or seven. And it was like, well, what about the other three slots? Yeah. Like, why specifically are you excluding films now? Just have a hard, hard number and just go to that. You know, there's no reason not to. So I, I don't know if maybe the Academy thinks it like sullies their brand to say, well, hey, we're going to throw 10 best picture nods at 10 films every year because that means those 10 films will be able to advertise on that. They'll have that printed on their Blu-ray cover, like nominated for Academy Award, you know. I don't, I don't really understand why they ever said it can't be always 10. So this decision makes sense to me what do you know about this diverse representation um so i only skimmed through this and i do not have any like real solid details okay. um, other, other than that, that they're going to try to have more uh inclusion and diversity uh in in the film representation um which i've actually i recently was having some conversations that the word integration is actually a better word than diversity diversity kind of has this negative commentations of quotas and things like that, but to have more integration in, in, re in representation in film. Yeah. Uh, there's this, there's this line here in their official statement they released. They said the Academy will encourage equitable hiring practices and representation on and off screen in order to better reflect the diversity of the film community. And then to ensure more diverse representation, they're going to be creating a task force of industry leaders that will develop and implement new representation and inclusion standards for Oscars eligibility. Basically, seems to say, hey, we're not just going to be doing your your typical American films. I wonder how much of this is spurned by Parasite winning Best Picture last year, right? Because that, that caught, some, caught some weird headlines. There were some people who were oddly upset about that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, I, I think that will mean, yeah, looking at, at uh, international films, uh, foreign language films as equals and not necessarily oh, that's just a foreign film. Yeah. So keep it here on Offscript for more. We love watching the Oscars. Mostly Andy. I'm going to be honest. But <laughs> yeah. I, li I like following up on Twitter. That's usually my scene. 20 years of the Oscars. 20 years of watching the Oscars, Andy? My God. You're a menace. Uh, that being said, we should move into our first review. I'm going to be taking the summary Wait, for we, this one. We have one more, <laughs> one more story. Do we really? Oh, no. Hold on. What's the story? Uh, the uh, the Oscars are also being pushed back. Uh, this just came out yesterday. Oh. Um. The Oscars have they voted on Monday to push the Oscars back to uh, April 25th. Um, this because of the coronavirus pandemic. So this will give 
films is more time to be eligible for awards. Um, and they've actually pushed back the eligibility window as well. So actually they're going to allow films to be released up through February 28th of 2021. And then the, um, the actual show would be April 25th. So basically everything being moved up two months. This makes a lot of sense, right? Considering the way theaters have been closed, films have been pushed back. Like obviously they need to expand some windows a little bit. So I guess this is, not any kind of surprise, right? Um, what what would they have been? What what would have won won Best Picture this year had they not started pushing the windows back? Yeah, it would, been, I mean, it would have been a mess. I mean, it depends on what comes out towards the end of the year because I mean, so far, I mean, most most of what's been affected has been the middle and or kind of the middle of the of the year, and you know, things have been moved to the fall, but. I don't know thing, how much things have just been moved into the next year or if I mean, January, February is really weak release date. So I can't imagine it affects things that much. But it's good to, you know, give some time and allow for the, for the fact that we've been in a worldwide pandemic for the last you know few months. Yeah, I can appreciate in here where they mentioned that they're going to be pushing for a live broadcast. Apparently, there had been some rumble rumbling of like a pre-tape thing or like a virtual event kind of thing. And they said, no, no, we're still doing it at the Dolby Theater. We're still inviting everybody out. The glitz and the glam is part of the Oscars. And I think I respect that decision. Um, I don't know if I stand behind the health and safety of that decision, but I, I can appreciate that. Like, that's their brand, right? Like the red carpet. You got to have the, the dresses and the suits and, and the ridiculous speeches and... Yeah, you gotta, you gotta do the show. Yeah. You gotta do the show. You gotta do the show. Yeah, and apparently they're gonna be doing the show just a couple months later than normal. Uh, that being said, that is all of our stories, right? I'm sorry I forgot yes, that one. Yes, I should yes. have made a banner for it. It's fine. Uh, we need to move on to our first review of the episode. I'm gonna be taking the summary of this one. Uh, the movie is Judd Apatow's new comedy film, The King of Staten Island. I like your tattoos. What are those numbers on your arm? Oh, that's uh, the date my dad died. He was a fireman. Died in a fire 17 years ago. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Don't be, it's fine. Knock, knock. Who's there? Not your dad. <laughs> so The King of Staten Island is the story of Pete Davidson, the SNL comedian who caught a lot of attention in the last couple of years for uh, a series of, of public relationships and, and kind of, I don't want to say rampant drug use, but, but, but very honest use of drugs, as he would explain on Saturday Night Live when it would appear in things like Weekend Update. Pete Davidson is a bit of an off-the-wall comedian, to say the least. He's covered in tattoos. Uh, he doesn't do a whole lot of writing for the show. Um, he, he doesn't appear in many sketches. He's like 20, I think he's 24 now. He was like 23 or 22 when he joined SNL. Like he's just this real weird lanky kid from Staten Island. And this movie gets into a bit of who he is. Uh, when Pete Davidson was a young, was, was a young lad. I think when he was seven, his father, Scott, who was a firefighter died in a fire and it, it really set him back in a weird way. Um, and growing up, he, he was doing a lot of drugs and he was, he was getting tattoos and he was doing his thing and he didn't really know where he was going and he fell into comedy. What the King of Staten Island is, is an alternate look at his life. It's what if Pete Davidson had never really gotten into comedy? What if he had never learned to kind of express his grief through that? What if he just stayed, ho stayed at home, kept living in his mom's house, kept smoking weed and never really went anywhere? What do we think would have happened? That's what this movie is. So... Our main character, Scott, who is Pete Davidson, playing an alternate version of himself, is living at home with his mom, uh, played by Marissa Tomei, and he has absolutely no direction. He has seemingly no desire to do anything other than become a tattoo artist with his pretty 
pretty goofy t- uh, uh, tattoo and drawing skills, uh, and and he's just not going anywhere. His sister in college is like, you have to figure something out. His mom doesn't have the heart to tell him you got to get out of the house. And and once his mom meets a, a another another firefighter uh, played by Bill Burr with a big goofy handlebar mustache, uh, they ultimately decide, hey, we got to get Scott's wheels turning a little bit. Um, they kick him out. He, he he's got nowhere to go, and it's this story of him starting to learn, hey, I, I've got to take charge and do something for myself. It, it is a comedy. It is two hours and 17 minutes. It is currently available on video on demand for the low, low price of nineteen ninety nine. Uh, <laughs> Andy, what did you think of The King of Staten Island? Um, so it's kind of a mixed bag. So if, while I was watching it, I actually really enjoyed it. It's it's really funny. It does succeed on the on the comedy side. Uh, definitely laughed a lot. There's a lot of good jokes. It's good writing. Um, it's way too long. Like every Judd Apatow film is always about 20, 30 minutes too long. Two hours, seven, 17 minutes for a comedy is just... It's a bit much. Um, also, the, it, it kind of the I, while I enjoyed it while I was watching it. The farther I get away, the more problematic it kind of becomes. There's a lot of kind of story elements that don't really make a lot of sense, or like a lot of subplots that get dropped. And while this is a coming of age story, I, f- I feel like he doesn't really come of age a lot or enough to kind of I don't know, I don't know. It's, it seems like he he just hasn't made a lot of progress uh, as a character uh, personally. But it is. Those narrative issues aside, um, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun, and we, you know, we made a, an event of it. We uh, um, Zach came over with our friend Matt, and we we rented some pizza and we got some beer, and you know, we made a whole event, which made the twenty bucks a lot easier to swallow than if it would have just been me on my own. Yeah, uh, which I think is probably the ideal way to watch uh, films like this. If you're going to pay $20 to watch a movie, make sure other people are watching it with you. Like, get your money's worth, right? Make them chip in or buy you a beer or something. Uh, We had a good time doing it. Yeah, uh, this movie is, at its heart, very sincere. Like, I I think Davidson does a great job. Uh, A lot of the reviews have said, you know, he lights up the screen and it's his breakout performance. And it very well might be. He's, He's great in this movie. I think most of the people in this film are actually really good. It, it feels very heartfelt, uh, closer to an Apatow film like Funny People uh, than than most of his like stoner comedies, right? Because fundamentally, there's there's like a really deep, sincere story here with the death of his father and, and trying to find his direction. But th- it's just a little too long, and like, yeah, there's kind of just some plot points that just don't ever get resolved. Um, the the core ones do, I think, but. I don't think there's enough satisfaction at the end of the movie to justify the journey. I think if it was a little tighter and maybe just a couple of quick scenes to wrap up some other points or, or maybe just making it a tight 90 and leaving it, it would, it would work better. But for the length of the picture, it, it could have worked a little better. The comedy's great though. I want to get into what works in it. Uh, so let's jump right in. I think the first place is our cast, right? We have a yeah. very large cast in this picture. We've got Pete Davidson as the lead Scott. We have Marissa Tomei as his mom. Uh, a wonderful young woman playing his sister, who I'm not familiar with. but uh, uh, Belle Pauly. She plays his kind of uh, more successful counterpart, right? She's a couple years younger, a few years younger than him. And she's headed to college right at the beginning. She just graduates high school. She's going to some big college in the city. Uh, her mom's all excited for her. And then there's Scott, who's staying at home. So she's she plays this fantastic little foil for him. Scott has this group of uh, ragtag, stoner, tattooed characters he hangs out with, uh, who I'm not familiar with any of them. Maybe their first big roles, but they're... 
pretty funny. And we've got Bill Burr, uh, who plays kind of the love interest for his mom and really this kind of opposing father figure for Scott to kind of uh, learn with and, and grow accustomed to and, and, and hopefully grow with. Um, he's a firefighter. He's in the firehouse with a handful of other characters, na- namely Steve Buscemi, who appears in this movie for a handful of scenes because Steve Buscemi used to be a firefighter. And that's really kind of our, our, our main core cast. There's a girlfriend and a love interest, but none of them really stood out to me other than that. And and, and for a two-hour picture, they're all real good, man. They're all real solid. Uh, um, but it's just a lot to carry, I think, for any one performance. And I think the best one is probably Pete Davidson, who really really jumps off the screen here. Yeah, I, he's fantastic. He, like I said, he's really funny, and he has some some scenes where you know he's got to bring the drama, or he's got to bring like the the emotion to it. And he, it's very it's very stark, you know. Like he's he's very straightforward. Of like, yes, I have you know de- bad. I have severe depression. You know, I take antidepressants. That's why. And he's just like that's why I'm that's why I'm not doing anything with my life is because it's, I'm messed up because of this. But he kind of uses uses it as a crutch, not not to uh, move forward. Uh, but yes, the rest of the, the, the cast is really good. Uh, Belle Pally, who we actually, I remember from white boy, Rick, she, she played the, the sister um, who was real loud in, in, in that movie as, yeah. as well. Um, Marissa Tomei is fine. Although I was reading, I saw a couple of headlines. Like she's, she's kind of been pigeonholed into these mother roles, which she doesn't really like, like think back to Sp- you know, Spider-Man into the, a uh, far from home. Um, and then Bill Burr, who I haven't seen, I don't think in, in a movie, or I can't remember a movie where he had like a, a real role like this uh, is also really great. So the, the cast is good. And Steve Buscemi, who of course uh, is a volunteer firefighter and actually, you know, got up on an engine on nine 11 was actually part of, you know, the first responders. Uh, so I, it's, it's really special to kind of see him in the movie as well. Yeah. Uh, looking at kind of our, our larger plot, I want to talk about that for a minute. I think the movie opens with a, a brilliant kind of metaphor for what you're about to see. It's this little set piece of Pete Davidson driving in a car, right? His beat up old Corolla or whatever. And he's listening to some rap song. And as he's driving, he does this thing where he like closes his eyes for a minute just to see if he can stay on the road. And he just keeps his eyes shut for like as long as he can. Like this is like it very quickly visually tells us this is a character who doesn't have a whole lot of reason to pay attention, you know, and, and it's like, I, I'm just looking for a thrill. I, I need something to live for. He opens his eyes. There's a car wreck. He swerves out of the way, ends up clipping another car, which runs into another car and he drives off. This this little mistake, this thing he does of, of trying trying to, I don't know, do something for himself, to have an experience, a genuine experience, ends up hurting other people. And he gets off scot-free. Uh, it's it's such a great metaphor for who he is as a character in this film. <laughs> and and I think that's kind of the rest of the film, right? Scott plays this guy who is an absolute layabout, who, who, who seems to aspire to nothing other than working at a lo- local tattoo shop. Uh, he... he Lives with his mom, doesn't pay rent, has no a- aspirations of getting a real job, hangs out with his friends, does Xanax and, 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 and smokes weed all day. His sister's successful. He's not going anywhere. And all he does is, is talk about when he's at home about how, 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 how cool things would have been with his dad. His dad has a shrine in the home. And like, he's just this character who's incredibly flawed and incredibly broken, who never had a dad and hasn't really done anything and doesn't have any direction. And like, it's real sad to watch because I feel like everybody's kind of known somebody like that in their life. And Davidson really does a great job of bringing that out. But like 
the direction he finds isn't particularly solid or stable. <laughs> once once he gets thrown out of his mom's house, well, we, oh, I've been talking a lot. Go go ahead. Yeah. So, so when we have coming of age films, you know, we generally see a character. It's about growing up or about growth. Uh, one of the ones that comes to mind is Dope, uh, which stars uh, the, the guy who voices uh, Spider Man into the Spider Verse, um, Miles, Miles Morales. Morales. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So he he where he plays like this this kid who who's obsessed with with like 90s rap and you know he grows up yeah i remember yeah he that's a great film and that's someone who has their life together but still has some growing up to do um and the thing with this i mean coming of age stories are generally they kind of should stop when you're about 18 they're generally that that like teen years where it's like he's like in his mid-20s so it's kind of it's kind of awkward and also he just in my opinion, he doesn't grow up enough in this film. And like I said, the catalyst that, that kind of moves everything forward is when his mom starts dating Bill Burr's character, who's a firefighter, because he has a real problem with firefighters because because his his father was one who whom he lost, and he you know he he gets in a big argument with a bunch of other firefighters. He said you shouldn't have kids because it's selfish. You know what happens if you die? What's what happens? Like it's a you know he says some some really like stark and really blunt blunt things like that, um, but he. Like I said, my big one of my big issues is that I feel like he doesn't do enough growth uh, to be considered like a successful coming of age story. Yeah, it's it's a little bit, and we should talk about this when we get into like direction. Um, but it, it, it's a little bit like he just starts to find the path of where to go, and then the movie ends, and like you just expect a little bit more. Um, um, to borrow the term I used when we were talking about this last week, Danemois, right? Danemois is a French term in film for for like finality for an ending, like to describe like the end of something. And, and, and this doesn't really have that. Like he's got this whole thing with his sister, this really kind of interesting relationship where she's successful and he's not, and they'll call each other and she'll be like, Hey, don't, don't be mean to mom. Right. Or like get out and do something with your life. Like you got to do something. Like she doesn't take, she doesn't take any of his shit. And, and he needs somebody like that in his life. And he calls her when he needs advice and she's like, do this or do that. And they go to a party in one scene and like, they've got this funny little relationship. Well, come, come around the end of the movie. Like, the last time he talks to her in the movie, she's telling him not to do this horrible idea that he's like, I'm going to do it anyway because this is what I think is the best thing to do, even though he's pretty much wrong all the time because he has no direction. And, like, that's it. We never get, like, a scene at the end when he when she, when she he's like, hey, you know what? I'm really sorry. Or, like, I'm going to try harder. Um, um, that never yeah. happens. <laughs> yeah, the last thing we see her do is, like, walk away and flip him off. Yeah, mad at him. Uh, <laughs> which maybe, may, like, may, hey, maybe they're brother and sister. Maybe that's, like, their cute way of saying I love each other. But, like, we don't know that. We're the audience. Like, you kind of have to show us and tell us that. And that, that isn't, doesn't happen. He's got an uncle who gives him a job as a busboy. That's, that's part of the plot in this film. Um <laughs> involves his, his, his kind of girlfriend uh and 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 at the, at 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 this restaurant at the end of the night when everybody wants wants to get their tips and leave the waiters and the busboys have to literally fight for their tips like, with like club Hulk style fists. yeah yeah right which i know is like an apatow gag i guess uh, um for a laugh but like that never goes anywhere he he gets punched out twice he never wins a fight. It <laughs> yeah. never comes up again. There's never a scene when he like at the end of the film like does he quit his job? Because he starts working at this firehouse with Bill Burr, right? Like, it's never made clear. What happened there? Did, did he tell the uncle, like, he doesn't want to work for him anymore? Did he? Does he still do that? That never comes around. Uh, there's a whole bit with his friends uh, uh, committing a crime that is never really resolved. 
But at the same time, the things that are important, the, the relationship with the mom, uh, uh, him him kind of coming to terms with his dad and learning more about him, uh, uh, getting to know Bill Burr and kind of get to get together with the guys in the firehouse, that stuff works. I, I think that 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 kind of comes into something. There's this great montage uh, where he works in the firehouse and uh, you know learns more about him. But that that stuff comes around. But there's just kind of these loose plot threads that are just never just never resolved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that's one of the big flaws of the movies. And I feel like they sat around and, and thought, hey, this scene would be really funny and we could, you know, people will laugh. And I feel there's a whole bunch of that. And then they didn't know how to really tie it into the movie. And I mean, like I said, there's there's that plot line with the um, him working at the restaurant kind of goes nowhere. Him and his stoner friends abruptly kind of goes nowhere. Him and his relationship with his sister. There's a plot line of him having to walk uh, Bill Burr's kids to school every day. That just yeah. kind of drops off. There's a whole lot of that. And it's, again, it, it could have been a lot cut in the editing room down. But it's just, like I said, I enjoyed it in the moment. But afterwards, I was like, hey, when, what happened? To, what about that thing? What about this thing? What, you know? Yeah, there, there's this bit with his ex-wife, uh, play, Bill Burr's ex-wife, played by Janine Garofalo, who's in like three scenes. And there, one of them's like a pretty decent scene. It's a chunk of script, man. It's a few pages. She's got to talk. Uh, she's got to act. And like, she never appears yeah, in the film never again. Seen. Like, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's supposed to be an allegory for life about like, well, that's how life goes. You don't always tie everything off with everybody. Yeah, maybe. But like, usually in a film, you kind of tie those sloppy writing. Off. Right. It just feels sloppy. And honestly, the way this film's put together, it feels a little like maybe they did shoot those scenes. And then maybe in the editing room, they felt like it stepped on the ending or it didn't get a good enough laugh. I'm not sure, but it doesn't it doesn't really go anywhere. Most of the film does. The core of the film carries through to the end, but like there's there's just some, kind of some plot threads that have interesting characters and have funny developments that don't go anywhere. I think that should lead us probably into the comedy, right? Which is the core of of what's happening in this film. I think most of what's going on is Judd Apatow's kind of classic sense for comedic timing and editing along with Pete Davidson's very dark sense of humor uh, and his ability to just very blatantly say what's on his mind uh, with a straight face without without breaking and without uh, really any remorse for who he's talking to. That stuff is effective. I, I think that's that's really what works about Pete Davidson on SNL. It works great in this movie. He feels very genuine. He feels like himself because in a lot of ways, he's basically playing what is himself, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like the the comedy, I, I didn't have any issues with. Like I, we were laughing a lot, pretty constantly. The writing's funny. The the gags are good. Like I said, some of these gags don't go anywhere, but they are genuinely funny in and of them themselves. Um, and and it helps that the performances are real strong too. Obviously, Pete Davidson, but Belle Pally and Marissa Tomei. There's a great scene where, where her and uh, you know she has a girlfriend that uh, they're sitting around and kind of day drinking. Um, that is really funny and some really good good acting. Bill Burr is good good as well. So the the comedy part of this works really well. Yeah, and, and on occasion uh, that that comedy I think can come at the expense of character. Um, for example, with the, with the, with the, the stoner friends, uh, they don't exactly end up in like ideal circumstances at the end of this movie. And they basically end on like a throwaway gag and it makes them feel like throwaway characters. Like you don't really ever find out what happens to them. And it's like, why were they in the movie? If not to just kind of make us laugh because really they don't help Scott in any fashion. Um, they don't really hurt him either. He's the same character really, regardless of them. Uh, because if he's not hanging out with them, he's sitting at home on the couch watching SpongeBob. The stuff with his mom, uh, she, you know, she's a fragile woman who had her husband die and has been trying to, trying to raise two kids, and she's been successful at least in one aspect, but with Scott, she's not really getting anywhere. So when we get to a scene later after Scott's like, hey, mom, you know, I feel like I've really 
really come along and developed. And I feel like I've done a lot for myself. Uh, and she literally laughs him out of the room. It, it just feels like totally inconsistent. Right. Like, why, why would she do that? It's funny to us on screen, but like, it doesn't make any sense for her character to be that way, that she should be sincere. And, and I, I don't know. Um, and I don't know if that's just an Apatow thing or again, like maybe they shot more and didn't use it. But when a film clocks in at this length and doesn't seem to really follow certain beats, it makes me wonder if like maybe it was longer and this is just kind of what they reduced it to to make it work. Right. Yeah. The, uh, it, it's totally I think it's pretty totally focused. It does kind of, you know, Judd Apatow has that weird thing of he wants it's it, like he invent, essentially invented the dramedy, you know, of having comedy and then some serious aspects you know something like funny people is a little bit too serious because you know adam sandler has cancer and he's literally dying through the whole movie and it's it's hard to balance those two i feel like this movie does a better balance of those that you have a serious subject and a serious topic but it's not so dark that it kind of makes you not have fun at the movie right like it's not played that straight um pete davidson cannot stay at a firehouse and smoke weed it, it would not happen like that. That They would not let him do that. Right. Additionally, uh, you can see in the trailer that's running. If you're watching this on Facebook, uh, the, the, the guys that work at the firehouse would not slam him with a, with a 200 pound fire hose while, while he's sleeping. That doesn't happen. Like it's funny for a gag. Waiters don't fight for their tips. Like it's funny for a gag, but it doesn't make sense in any kind of reality. <laughs> that reminded me of waiting. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Right. And like, that's not actual reality. And I guess, well, films aren't reality. I don't know. I do want to talk about direction. Um, Apatow directs this movie a little differently than I, than I've known his previous films. His last movie I didn't see. It's called train wreck starring Amy Schumer. And I totally missed that one. Um, but this movie is shot with a lot of handheld. Uh, you might be able to see in the trailer. It's a, it's a whole lot of ca cameras on shoulders, not a whole lot of tripod, which, which is something like Funny People is played a lot more straight. It feels genuine because it feels like we're standing around with the characters. When he's hanging out with his friends, uh, uh, shooting baskets, right, in a field, it feels, like you're, it feels like you're there. It feels like these people are real. It's a lot of natural lighting, and that stuff feels really good. Um, like I said, I think, I think the problems may have come in the editing room. It's hard to say for sure, but that's, that's where I think primarily the big problem with this film lies. Mm -hmm. uh, any thoughts in direction, Andy? No, I'm ready for recommendations. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Uh, Andy, would you recommend The King of Staten Island? Yeah, overall, yes. First of all, like while it was 20 bucks, it, it's really nice to to pay that much and get you know something new and fresh like it's a lot but i, I do feel like it, it was worth it you know and different people will feel differently depending on on who's involved but you know it was funny i did have a good time I, I, there are some plot issues that kind of don't go anywhere and i don't feel like the character's growth is necessarily super satisfactory but it's a good time at the movies it's fun it's enjoyable i laughed a lot well said. Uh, some people might feel differently. I do. Uh, I <laughs> I do think it's worth recommending. I, I I would recommend this movie. I would not recommend you pay twenty dollars for it. Um, wait till it comes on like a streaming service because it'll show up on one of them. And like if you're if it's on something you're already paying for, I think totally worth your time. It's a little long. Uh, and and being a person that watches a lot of movies on on the on the weekly, uh, I was a little frustrated by some of the structural choices, but. Um, you know, our friend Matt, we watched it with, he, th he thought it was great. And he was like, you guys are, are full of yourselves. Like you stopped watching so many movies and maybe that's true. Uh, so it's good. It's good for a laugh. If you like Pete Davidson, I think you'll enjoy it. It's a heartwarming story with a, with an Apatow rapper on it. The King of Staten Island, not so bad. Uh, and with that, we should move on to our next section. Uh, Andy, you want to, you want to announce this one? <laughs> uh, it's time for the trailer park. Uh -huh. 
right, so I'll go ahead and start with this first uh, trailer. Uh, this is Eurovision Song Cons Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. Ever since we were children, we've had one dream. Winning the Eurovision Song Contest. So this is a new straight-to-Netflix uh, comedy starring Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams as a European uh, song duo, uh, band duo, and they're competing uh, in this big Eurovision Song Contest, which apparently is a real-life, like, huge, huge deal. And it's all about theatrics, you know? It's, it's not like American Idol. It's about, like, being as outlandish. And, you know, I was reading some comments that said, like, you know, the trailer looks like a very watered down of what you would actually see on the show. Um, so that, that's kind of the story that they're, they're a washed up group, but they're trying to, you know, get back, get, you know, back to the glory days. And, you know, it's this ridiculous, like, you know, Scandinavian, uh, band. Um, I'm not going to say anything yet. <laughs> Zach, what do you think? Uh, man, I think this movie looks terrible. <laughs> okay. Like, okay. There's a couple of things. One, when a movie goes straight to Netflix, that used to mean, oh, Hey, it's going to be available soon. Now, what it usually means is that movie's probably not that awesome. Uh, two, the title Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga implies to me that like, maybe they would like to make more of these because Eurovision, right? You're right. is is a very big thing. Like there's, there's music acts from all over the world. Although every country submits one. Usually I'm not sure if America's still invited, but, and it's usually a big, a big song and dance, man. It's, it's like the American idol for the country. I, I've got, a, I've got a friend who's, who, who's from out of the country and they watch it every year. Religiously, they would have parties at their house for everybody to get together and watch them. It's like this huge thing. And it's cool for a movie to be covering this, but when you say, hey, here's the title of the thing, and then here's a subtitle, and the subtitle is the core of the film, what that tells me is you're trying to set up some kind of loose franchise. Maybe I'm wrong, because I don't think this will ever be a franchise. I think this no. movie will I think this will die after this one movie. Uh, it, also, it's a Will Ferrell comedy, and like we were talking about before the show, man, Will Ferrell's humor died like 10 years ago. Like, yeah. <laughs> he, he landed at a time when everybody was playing stuff straight, so to play something straight, but like in a funny way in a comedy, to say something funny, but play it straight, uh, was good. Now that's not. I don't think new audiences go for that, and I'm disappointed to see Rachel McAdams starring <laughs> alongside him. So You know, w yeah, Will Ferrell came like his his heyday his the, the time when he was most funny was like in the early 2000s this is like pre-social media pre-modern internet you know we're talking things like old school anchorman uh right when he was uh, fresh after leaving snl i mean it, it was it's just hilarious well wedding crashers um he, it used to be some of the funniest things that we've seen even things like uh Step Brothers. but man it's been such a long time since he's made something that's been like genuinely funny and i think part of the issue is that he he has never really grown as a character uh talladega nice is another great uh will ferrell comedy but um yeah I, I feel like his brand of humor just hasn't really grown or changed at all it's you know things from 15 years ago aren't really as funny today. You, you got to do something new and he's never really reinvented himself in any way. And I was saying before the show, I'm much more excited to see Rachel McAdams in this. Like she looks hilarious. I'm much more excited to see what she does in, in this than him. Yeah. And it looks like they've got some like goofy subplot romance thing that looks super forced um, because Wolf Ferrell's always got to have like a romantic partner in these movies uh for some reason and and there's some goofy protagonist who i've never heard of like who just looks like diet ben stiller from 20 years ago 
Pierce Brosnan appears in this film as like Will Ferrell's disappointed dad who he's never lived up to because we've never seen a movie where Will Ferrell has a dad who's disappointed in him. Your dad like, issue, yeah. It just hits all the beats of like lame. There's the goofy costumes. Like <sighs> there, there was a time when like a Netflix movie would come out and we'd be like excited about it. We'd be like, oh man, that's going to be cool. And that's coming to Netflix. And I'd see something like this and be like, hey, maybe it'll be funny. It's got Netflix money. And now it's like, nah, man, the last movie Will Ferrell made was Holmes and Watson, which won like five raspberries last year. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I feel like Will Ferrell went through this phase where he was just, he was so hot for a while that then we became oversaturated and, you know, every little... It seemed like there was a Will Ferrell movie coming out like three times a year, and it just this comedy got more and more watered down as, as kind of time went on. Yeah, guy needs to play stuff more straight, right? Like, um, there was a movie a while back about him him living on his lawn and selling mm-hmm. stuff. Everything must go, right? I mm-hmm. see that, but like, it, it's a bit more like straight laced Will Ferrell. He he needs like the Adam Sandler roles on occasion of somebody who like actually lets him play something serious. And I think he'd get a lot further than like this goofy brand of comedy. He's still trying to shill, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it'll be great. Uh, I we'll, we'll see when it comes out. Uh, we should move on to the next trailer. Uh, I'll announce this one. The movie is You Should Have Left. Daddy, because you're old, you die before mommy, right? Hey, not that old. Wait. What? Listen. Be quiet. So You Should Have Left is a Bloomhouse horror production starring Kevin Bacon and Amanda Seyfried as two kind of disassociated parents, right? I think they're newly together. From what I can tell from the trailer, I think Kevin Bacon... No, no, no. I think they actually have a kid together. Uh, I was going to say maybe it's Kevin Bacon's child from a previous marriage, but I think it's actually the, their daughter. Uh, they get what appears to be a haunted Airbnb. They, they get out to this weird house Ooh. in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, with this crazy architecture, and they start to weird things start to happen. And and well, uh, Kevin Bacon's got a diary he writes in, and messages start to appear in it that say you should have left. And then and then there's a creepy girl in a bathtub. It checks a lot of the Bloomhouse horror boxes. Andy, what do you think? Uh, this also looks terrible. And and again, yes, one of the first thing I saw when I saw Kevin Bacon and Amanda Seyfried in a like romance, I was like, that's not you know a father daughter thing. That's because yeah, Kevin Bacon is 61 and Seyfried is 34. So there's a massive age difference. And it's my god, it, it's uh, really kind of un- uncomfortable. Um, and yeah, and then this this uh, movie like it's a weird haunted house, but it's like a horror movie that like a fourth grader wrote. It's like, oh, there's a scary shadow, and then like you said, oh, something ap- appears in the diary. Someone, you know, uh, it just this does not look scary at all. It doesn't look interesting at all. There's a weird relationship between uh, the two two leads, um, but you know, sometimes uh, Bloomhouse d- d- pulls it off, but because th- they always. They make things on on small shoestring budgets, so it doesn't have to be super successful to be a hit. Yeah, and like I dig Kevin Bacon, and like I at least dig the look of what's happening in here. There's a lot of natural light. There's this kind of creepy house with this odd architecture. Like fundamentally, it looks like the plot to Harry Potter too. Like, <laughs> it doesn't look like it's doing anything new. It's it's creepy. The relationship it's built on, and and and. It it just looks like one of many like just shoddy Bloomhouse horrors. They're gonna come and go, and they're gonna cash in on this horror craze that, that seems to be still happening. 
And and the reason I think we we should talk about why why are we talking about these trailers, right? Why are we talking about Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, and you should have left? I think the reason we're talking about them is because you guys need to understand nothing good is coming out in theaters like for for a few months. Like it's just gonna kind of be this way until stuff starts to open back up. We get these weird looking things, things that probably should be straight to streaming. And this this is where we're at now. This is why the Academy's pushing stuff back. This is film in 2020, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like we don't have a lot coming out. The, the, the only movies that are coming out, like I think it's next month, is um, the Unhinged, which is the not Russell Crowe, uh, Gerard Butler, something or other film, and then you know Tenet. And that's we we are starting to get into that territory of the uh, the content drought, you know, we, which we might not see until maybe 2021 because there are a lot of films that have been pushed into the fall i think the fall is actually going to be fine because if we miss all these uh spring and summer dates but man come next this time next year or come spring of 2021 it's going to be dry yeah it's 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 going to be something else so keep an eye out for trailers like your vision song contest and you should have left things that you see on facebook and go oh god that looks completely mediocre uh odds are you're right and uh, that's 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 our skeptical look at film in in June of 2020. Well, and, and I want to. I'm trying to find how much this this actually comes out this Friday, by the way, to to rent. Shut uh, the hell! Really? <laughs> oh God. Okay. Um, and I'm trying to see how much it's it's going to be, but I can't. It cannot be a twenty dollar film. <laughs> no. So th- this is a good good example of something that yeah, like it should be like seven to ten dollars. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, like that's another thing that you can do through streaming that you can't do in theaters. You can do variable pricing. You can Mm -hmm. do, which, you know, theaters have to just have a a flat rate for, you know, a matinee evening that no matter the film, but we can kind of, depending on the quality or, or whatever, you can have variable pricing online. Hmm. And with that, we should move on to our final film. Uh, Andy, you're going to be taking the summary on this one. I'm excited to hear your thoughts. I've, okay. I've we've talked about it a little bit, but not as much as we probably should. Uh, Andy, please take it away. The Five Bloods. So this is the latest Netflix film from director Spike Lee. It's a Vietnam War epic, sort of, uh, which chronicles five friends who are uh, Vietnam veterans who are older. It takes place in uh, current time, and they all are going back to Vietnam as older men to uh, find the remains of their long-lost captain, uh, Storm and Norman, who's played by uh, Chadwick Boseman. While also trying to find a buried treasure of gold, which they they found back uh, during Vietnam, uh, so that's kind of our setup. And you know, the film is it's about a, lo- a lot of things. It's about these these veterans, what it was like to be black in Vietnam. A, a lot of re- very hard to watch footage about the Vietnam War itself and the way it was portrayed in the media and what it was like to be a soldier at that time and what it's what it's meant to serve to to be a black soldier and serve in the U.S. military since uh since forever um that's kind of kind of our setup the our our team of five uh which is uh played played by stars delroy lindo jonathan majors clark peters norm lewis and isaiah whitlock are our five people they go to vietnam 
they head out to the jungle. They tra- they're looking for the treasure and, like I said, the remains of their uh, their leader. And it's a story of growth. It's a story of friendship. It's a story of uh, just a lot. There's a lot going on in this film. A lot of it works. A lot of it also doesn't. So we're going to get into that. Uh, Zach, what do you think? You know, this movie's strange. Uh, and I said that about Spike Lee's last film, Black Klansman. And the older I get, the more Spike Lee films I watch, the more I'm kind of discovering the kind of auteur he is. I, I read a lot about him in high school and in, in film school, and we definitely watched some of his films, but there's a lot of his older stuff. So, so modern Spike Lee has definitely changed and definitely evolved. And I think one of the things I regretted about our Black Klansman review but way back when we watched that is we didn't spend a lot of time looking at it as like a proper film essay. We looked at it as more of a narrative picture. And I think Black a big part of what Black Klansman is is Spike Lee's kind of thoughts on modernism, right? And and white nationalism and, and, and white supremacy and protesting in Black Lives Matter. And there's a lot of that in that film, but it's very subtle. This movie isn't quite as subtle. It's not about the same thing. Uh, this is a lot more about uh, more Black Lives Matter now, and also the Vietnam War, and and also sacrifice of of, of Black people over time in America, whether that be at war or abroad or, or or at home. It's about Martin Luther King. It's 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 about. Man, it's about a lot of things, and I think that might be part of the reason why it's as long as it is, at two hours and 35 minutes. It also might be a big part of the reason why it feels so winding, and why there's parts of this film that don't match up with other parts, and there's 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 kind of plot lines that just kind of don't really ever become anything worth talking about. So there's things, if you watch this movie, we probably won't mention here, because they never really become anything. It's strange, and, and a lot like Staten Island, I think there's probably a tighter version of this film. I'm a little absolutely afraid. a tighter version yeah, of this I'm, film. I'm a little afraid this is what happens when you take an auteur like Spike Lee and you give him a platform like Netflix to say, hey, you can make anything you want, we'll run it, and nobody is next to him to put a hand on his shoulder and say, hey, pump the brakes a little bit, you gotta make this a little tighter, and you gotta make this a little bit more something. It's very expressive, it's very bold, Um but it, I, I don't think it's as good as his last film, and I want to talk about why. So where should we get started, Andy? Oh, gosh. Um, oh, gosh. I mean, we can start with, start with the plot. The, I, I like the premise of this, the, this idea of you know veterans who go back to Vietnam to kind of confront the ghosts of the, of the past and look for this treasure. That is a great uh, premise and I, I would love to see what Hollywood Spike Lee would have done with this and not Netflix uh, Spike Lee um, there, some of this this writing is just all over the place uh, you have Delroy Linda who plays Paul who's kind of the main leader he, he's kind of an unstable figure he reminds me very much of Colonel Kurtz of, uh, from Apocalypse Now yeah. which I think is definitely being uh, referenced here uh, unstable kind of crazy leader it, but it's just some of the other characters are are kind of thinly written, and I just don't believe the situations that they're in. Uh, that in very early on, his son just kind of shows up, so it, it turns into the five bloods and this extra guy <laughs> as well in in the jungle. And it's uh, it, it's a good premise, but I don't I don't think it's it's executed real well. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. At, at its core, this idea of four. Four former Vietnam soldiers, right? Four black soldiers trekking into the wilderness to find the remains of their fallen squad leader and also the stolen gold they buried with him is awesome, 
right? Because not only do you get these wonderful flashbacks featuring our man Chadwick Boseman and these guys fighting and, and, and getting into the situation that led them to where they're at now, but you also get a look back at how their lives have developed since, right? What they believed back then as black soldiers who were just up and coming and were still young and had so much of their lives ahead of them versus what they've experienced now and how one of them is now bankrupt and they have families that they've started and they've got ex-wives and drinking problems and, and opioid problems that the VA has provided them. Like that stuff is super cool. And you set that in a backdrop of, of the battlefield they were in, in a Vietnam that has changed and has evolved just like they have, but in a different way. And how a couple of them are horribly racist and others are, hey, let's cool it, man. It's all good. Like, peace and love. Like, that stuff is super cool. Like, at its core, what's happening in this movie is great. But there's these little, like, plot threads that do not need to be there. That that, that really just bog down the experience. There's, there's this little kind of side romance started between Paul's son, David, who joins them on this excursion. Uh, um, that, that, that involves a little bit of a romance. That is like 25 minutes of the film that is just a waste of screen time that that does nothing to further our plot, that does nothing to develop where we're going, and also turns into nothing at the end of the film, has has no relevance on the outcome of what happens. There's... There's this there's this plot about, about one of the guys having PTSD, which seems really relevant, but he also has like... Like, like dozens of minutes of like visions and conversations about it. That's like, you really could have cut this down and like done this in a much tighter format. And that's what's surprising because you look at a movie like Black Klansman or a lot of his previous films, I think. And Spike Lee is usually very good at keeping this stuff tight and not wasting time. And here it just feels exculpatory. It's, it's, it's self-indulgent almost. It, it feels like a director saying, hey, I'm going to do whatever I want because I can. And like, I get it, but sometimes throwing everything into the mix doesn't make it better, right? It's not necessarily better than the sum of its parts. It just, it could have been tighter. Yeah. Um, so there's some Hollywood level filmmaking going on here. And then there's like some TV movie level <laughs> filmmaking uh, that's going on here. Uh and that's what I think hurts it. Like you said, there's this this weird uh, romance. It doesn't really go anywhere. And just that there's this plot line of landmines in this group that's like trying to clear them. That group doesn't is never convincing to be real. They look like they're just wearing like a, you know sh shorts and t-shirt yes. and calling themselves uh, yeah. you know a nonprofit. They made that um, logo on Fiverr. Like it does not look <laughs> real at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's real bizarre, but the stuff that works, so part of the, what I think this film is trying to do is trying to teach, and it, it gives you a lot of historical context of things that were happening in Vietnam. It, it has, like, these radio transmissions from Hanoi Hanna, which was a real person, which I didn't know if that was real or not, um, which was a radio personality in Vietnam who would essentially speak to black American GIs and say, you, you know, your country does hate you. Your country is, is racist. Why are you fighting for them? Um, and presented a pretty good case at that, that point. And then there's also, you know, just historical footage of, you know, famous pictures that you've seen from Vietnam, the, the guy getting executed, the, the girl on like, who's been bombed with napalm, um, which I didn't realize we had footage of these things. I thought those were still uh, black and white pictures, but there we actually have, the real footage of those incidents, which I'd never seen before. So part of what Spike Lee's trying to do is teach you about some of these real 
horrors of the Vietnam War and the, what the situation was like for American GIs. That stuff is really interesting. But then, like I said, there's this cheesy subplot with uh, the, the, the romance with the French woman. The whole the thing with the son kind of showing up out of nowhere is kind of weird. And then, you know, one of the characters is like he pretends to be rich, but he's actually bankrupt. And that's like there's a lot of just strange subplots that just don't make a lot of sense in, in intercut with some really great filmmaking. Yeah, there's there's another one of the Bloods has they call themselves the Bloods, I should say. That's the five Bloods that that are titular in the film. One of them has a long lost romance from Vietnam uh, that he meets up with that like totally could have been cut from the film. Like does not offer anything. And I, I think every every one of these characters has to have their own character development, right? That's the deal. That over time, from when they were young to who they are now, like there has to be some development. They have to become somebody so they can reflect on who they were against who they are now. That's the idea, this kind of mirror through time. And, and I respect that, but at the same time, like, you could just kind of briefly allude to that or, or maybe just leave it off screen and just kind of talk around it and, and build up a little mystique around these guys. You don't have to just, like, clumsily show it. And it's weird for Spike Lee because this is a guy who is explicit about showing things, right, to cutting back to archival footage. That's something this movie does a lot. In the first two minutes, you get a, a very graphic scene uh, of archival footage of, of a guy, a prisoner of war, getting shot in the head. And that's, like, real footage. That, like, actually, like, it's not, he didn't go out and shoot that. Like, he got that from, like, a guy. The library, a yeah. Yeah, dude. Like, there, there's there's shots of, like, dead kids in this movie. That's, like, real dead kids. Like, it's a lot. And, like, I'm, I, I, I respect Spike Lee and I, I respect his message. But it's just a little too mixed in here. Like, I, I can't decide whether or not we're looking at the horrors of the Vietnam War, the plight of the black man across America, or we're trying to look at this core story of four dudes who find a bunch of gold in 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 the woods and start to kind of turn on each other for it. And and maybe there's an allegory here about how the black man needs to stay together with his, with with like join join hands with other people instead of be separated by greed and money and wealth. Like, it's just trying to do too much. Uh, and I think he could have diluted it down just a little, just just a couple of threads. Definitely, you could have definitely. just pulled in, and it would have worked so much better, I think, and it would have been tighter for it. Well, and there's also these flashbacks to them being in in Vietnam, fighting alongside uh, Chadwick Boseman, uh, Storm and Norman uh, character, um, and and these are just these. Uh, kind of thrown together war scenes that look real generic and don't you can't really tell what's going on and don't aren't super compelling that's, that's the other thing i was really excited that chadwick boseman was was in this he's hardly in this movie he's only in the in the, in the flashbacks yeah um you know i was a little uh, disappointed by that but yeah it's just all over the place like you said you have this real serious like thing message or you know conversations about what what it's like to be a black soldier in vietnam and even today or throughout the history and the horrors of vietnam then like i said juxtaposed with, with cheesy romance lines and shootouts and uh, other things like that it for two hours and almost 40 minutes yeah now i i, I do want to talk yeah. about kind of the way it's put together um outside of the plot I, I did think it was actually well shot i know andy said a lot of it feels like shot up by tv movie but between the archival footage and this kind of four by three aspect ratio it cuts to for the flashbacks and it's real grainy film footage to make it look old versus like the very modern widescreen stuff for, for the contemporary time. It makes it easy to distinguish where you're at in time. It doesn't jump around a whole lot. There's only a few flashback scenes, really. And that stuff all worked really well. And the stuff with Chadwick Boseman was really powerful because it's supposed to be. This is their squad leader, Storm and Norman, they call him. And like they're they're inspired by him. He drives them even after he's gone. And I think they demagogue him as a bit of a black figure. 
Um, and I think that's important, right? That that helps drive who these characters are, especially in the case of Paul, who has PTSD and, and has never really gotten over losing Norman. And, and I think that stuff's really good. It's really powerful. There's a bit of CGI in our fight scenes. Uh, you know, we, we cut back to back in the day and their helicopter goes down and like, Clearly, it's a CGI helicopter. Like, and 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 also, I should say, in the flashbacks, rather than recast our four older bloods, uh, they just use them again. And I guess you're just supposed to kind of use your imagination that, like, oh, hey, these are the younger versions of them, but this is how they see themselves in the modern time. And and I wouldn't mind that so much if the guys like actually had any training on how to use any of the weapons on screen, but they totally don't. There's there's a great shot when like Paul. <laughs> is supposed to be shooting out of a helicopter and he's sitting next to Chadwick Boseman who's also shooting out of a a helicopter. (laughs) Chadwick Boseman, maybe it's because he was in Black Panther or knows what's up. He's like looking down sights. He's reloading clips. The other guy's like just firing. (laughs) Because he's like 65 and he doesn't know how to do it and like nobody ever told him, I guess. And I was like, okay, if you're going to, if you're going to be emulating what your younger self is supposed to be doing, I respect the artistic decision here. But like, look the part a little bit like like actually emulate the motion the effects it, it reminds me of the irishman right when andy said you can't have 65 year old robert de niro look like, like act like 25 year old robert de niro you can make him look like it but he won't he won't emulate he can't the move same like motion. that yeah. right and we run into that problem a little bit a couple times throughout the film and and emotionally i think that comes across too these guys are just a little disjointed paul specifically uh has has pretty heavy PTSD and through a lot of the movie you don't really get inside of that you just see him from the scope of other characters his own hurts yeah right so when he's like incredibly racist to somebody else it's really messed up and we put when he puts on his make America great again hat because he's the one blood who's now a Trump voter which is actually an interesting development but one of many that's going on in this film it's a bit of a blender that way it, it makes him seem like a, a real a, a real not not good dude like he's the one who lost his way but then in the third act he, he wanders off on his own into the jungle and you get these wonderful scenes of him talking to himself and these long take hard cut shots yeah. yes of him looking at the camera as he walks through the jungle and he's just talking to himself and he's talking at the camera and that's like the spike lee stuff that like works so good and it's just peppered throughout this movie these brilliant shots Brilliant takes, brilliant scenes that are so well put together, interspersed with stuff that feels like it was shot by a second unit director. And like, I don't know, I don't know how that happened. I don't know if he was busy or if he just didn't, didn't have the direction he wanted, but it just doesn't, it doesn't all come together to make anything that feels as coherent as his previous stuff. This one feels like a pet project that, that just doesn't quite make it over the mark. Yeah, I agree. It feels like something that, that he wanted to do, but it, like a lot of Netflix stuff, it's just rushed, and and the and the the problem is in the writing. You know, you get the script tight, everything else will follow. But this is, it, it's way too long, like like we said, and it just kind of, it, it's it's got some really good ideas and then some really poor ideas at the same time. Yeah, for example, a quick example, right? Uh, on, on our way into kind of the center of Vietnam while the center of Vietnam, back to their battlefield, which is deep in the jungle of Vietnam, right? They take this, they take this boat to get in there. And it's very Apocalypse Now. It plays the same same Rise of the Valkyries, right? Which yep. is, I think, Apocalypse Now. Yep. Uh, very early in the film, when they're all hanging out at the hotel, uh, they, they have a DJ that, that has the big Apocalypse Now banner behind him, which doesn't make any sense in Vietnam, but it's a Spike Lee picture. It's fine. It doesn't have to all, have to all add up. Um, 
we, we get this kind of allegory to like apocalypse now a lot, right? There's these guys journey further into the jungle. There's the Colonel Kurtz mentioned, especially at the end that comes back around. Like there's a lot of that, but like, it doesn't, it doesn't add up to anything greater. Like it's just, it's almost like a throwaway gag. Hey, isn't this an awful lot, a lot, isn't this an awful lot like apocalypse now? Cool. Um, and never actually like comes out to anything greater. I, I think the core themes of the film are important and I think that stuff works, but it's just, it's just a bit muddled by everything else it's trying to do. It just, it, it's like, it's, it, it's trying to be too grand. Right. Right. What else do we need to talk about? Uh, Marvin Gaye is relevant a lot in the movie. Uh, his lyrics come up a bunch. Oh, I, I got something. Go ahead, Andy. No, I, I, I said, I think I've, I've said what I'm going to say. Yeah. I don't have about ready much. For recommendations. Yeah. I, I, I think I have about either before we jump into recommendations. I, I think, I think I'm starting to talk in circles, but I think at the at its core, like what's happening, in this movie really works. I think it just needed to, to 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 have an editor who came in with a freaking hacksaw and was like, "Nope, this can go. This whole separate plot line can go. This doesn't need to be here. We need to loot this down to something really centralized." I think that's what works so well about Black Landsman. You had a narrative placed against like this horrible tragedy. This, it's it, it's just too much, and and that's what I think. Uh, uh, but I do like the way it's made. <laughs> Andy, go ahead. What I was going to say, a setting is another issue for me, is that a lot of times I just never feel like they're in Vietnam. I feel like they're in, they could be in someone's backyard. Like the the, the landscape the doesn't look too. Yeah, yeah, the jungle doesn't look too jungly. And sometimes when they're on a boat, I was like, are they in a set? Are they, they look like they're in the Disney World jungle. Like I don't uh, think that they're actually down a river in Vietnam. And maybe they were and it just looks that good now but it, i i was it was hard to convince me that you were in the jungles yeah i i i i've never been to the jungles of vietnam so i don't know but i i was able to fall into it i was like okay sure they're, they're kind of there but when you said hey it looks like a lot of this was shot on a back lot it reminds me of like the the elisa vikander tomb raider when that came out and i said yeah. the same thing i was like it looks like it was shot behind the studio like it doesn't even look like anything and it, there's definitely some scenes that feel that way. And, and these guys, you know, the, mo- most of these actors are like in their 50s and 60s. Like, I doubt they actually flew them out to Vietnam and were like, hey, <laughs> hit, you know, hit hit the bug spray. All right, there's going to be some mosquitoes out here, but we're going to do some real acting. Like, I'm sure it was pretty chill stuff. It's a pet project, and I respect that. I, I don't think that really hurt it, but I, I just don't think it had quite the, the, I don't know, the tone it needed. And anyway, Andy, let's let's talk about recommendations. Would mm-hmm. you recommend Defy Bloods? I think I'm actually going to go with no <laughs> uh, right. in, yeah. in general. Uh, we were discussing this. I'm not sure who to recommend this to. It's way too long. It's way, way too long. Uh, it has some really hard things to watch. Uh, de- you definitely have some, you know, some really graphic war footage. Uh, it, its message is kind of all over the place. It's just, it's a mixed bag. Like I said, there are some good things about it. I, I think the, the historical stuff works real well. The, the things that, that I learned or didn't know about, are, are are done really well but it, that's mixed with like i said the modern stuff with a lot of the storytelling is just all over the place and i just uh, aside from you and i think i would just say hey watch these scenes i, I wouldn't <laughs> recommend the entire movie yeah I, I i hate to say i'm in the same boat because i think there's a lot about this film that works but w- like when it dude when it cuts to like its third or fourth image of like an actual dead person from history, I'm like, okay, who who, who am I going to tell tell to watch this movie? Who actually wants to see that? Like, it's it it's a lot, and and I think at its core, what's happening in this movie totally works. 
but it dude it's it's it gets into some heavy stuff and 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 in a way that i think i i think black klansman handled so much better right i i don't think spike lee's previous films had to show like incredible ultra violence like to get the point across and and this one kind of does and i don't know if resorting to that makes it better than it did any i don't know i don't know if resorting to that makes it any better I, I think it's a little it's a little all over the place it's definitely too long uh that there is a there is a shorter tighter version of this film within this film that i think totally works i i'd love to recommend it but i'd say if you want to watch a spike lee film check out black Landsman. like you, yeah. you're gonna enjoy it a lot more uh, it's much tighter and I'd, I'd be much happier to recommend it if you're real anxious if you love Spike Lee and you love these guys and you want to see them light up the screen go for it it's it's not it's really not that bad I know we harp on well this doesn't work and that doesn't work we do this every week all right it's easy for us to get caught <laughs> on like the things that that frustrate us uh it's it's really not that bad of a picture but like it you it is a hard R there there is some very very real very graphic violence in this film you know uh, uh and may the odds be ever in your favor I guess and with yeah yeah, uh, there, there is a great version of this film. There's an Oscar-worthy version of this film that could be made, um, and it's just not this one. You know, I would love to see this film in the hands of, like I said, Hollywood Spike Lee or uh, um, Spielberg or Scorsese or any of these big directors. You know, I, I think there is a great story that could have been told. Uh, it's just not. It's like I said, it, it's overly long. It's it's got some mixed messages and then like i said i could take the real serious stuff like i could take the horrendously graphic violence if we had a more compelling story to go along with it yeah it's 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 grisly in a way that it doesn't it doesn't need to be grisly and i think if you're looking for this message this is definitely a way to go spike lee is a very loud filmmaker that way but like i think there's more subdued approaches uh and he just comes off a little too strong on this one but if you're looking for strong it's the way to go and with that we should probably wrap the show andy what are we watching next week we are taking the week off um, yes we there are some new releases uh we will be watching them so uh amazon prime has a new film called 7500 uh which is about a pilot uh who has to fight hijackers on his plane uh played by joseph gordon levitt has real strong 9-11 vibes um and look and that's gonna be out to rent on uh, amazon prime and Artemis Fowl, of course, is also available now on on Disney Plus. We were gonna watch it, but it's had terrible reviews, so we're not gonna put ourselves or you through that. Yeah, uh, Artemis Fowl is not doing too hot. Uh, I'm not gonna tell you what it's got on Rotten right now, but it's in the single digits, so that should say everything it needs to say. Uh, so we're gonna take the week off and just kind of see what's going on. I think coming up on July, we might actually look into going to a theater again. Like that might be interesting to report on. It might happen, yeah. And and you're right, man. Like for the right screening at the right time, I'll probably do it. I miss going to the theater. I want to. Um, I do, but I also want to feel good about going to the theater. So. Of course. With that being said, if you enjoyed the show today, if you felt differently about uh, King of Staten Island or Defy Bloods, let us know. We'd be happy to hear it. You can email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. That is the best way to get a hold of us. You can also check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com, to see new reviews, to see clips from our episodes, to see a little bit of video. Maybe you only listen on iTunes or Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. We're on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're posting stuff on YouTube full episodes are going to be hosted there as well so if you weren't able to watch this you can see it there but the most important thing you can do for the show if you want to give back is just subscribe 
Subscribe to the show so you can see new episodes every single Tuesday night when they come out, except for next week because we have the week off. With that being said, thanks for listening to Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.